0: And let's, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for sending your Son to break the curse of sin and death, and for speaking a better word than the blood of Abel. Thank you that we can be forgiven and and made right with you. We thank you for your word, and I pray this afternoon as we open it and look to it that you would convince us of its truthfulness, that you would convince us that it is your word, that it is from you, that you would use it to work powerfully in our hearts, in our lives, and that we would be ready and prepared to give all and suffer any consequences for believing your word. We pray that you would work these things in us um, for your own name's sake, for your own glory, for the sake of your Son, Jesus, in in whose name we pray. Amen. On our church website, we describe our church as, among other things, being a Bible-believing church. There's a sense in which that's a strange thing to say, or to feel the need to say. Doesn't every church, after all, believe the Bible? Don't all Christians believe that? What does that mean to be Bible-believing? What does that look like? The United Church of Canada writes this on their website about what we believe regarding the Bible. It says this, It says, the Bible is central to the United Church of Canada. As a source of wisdom, personal prayer, and devotion, we believe the Bible can bring us closer to God. It remains one of our best ways of experiencing God's continuing work of creation and liberation in the world while offering us forgiveness, healing, and new life in Jesus. We often refer to a passage as the Word of God By this, we mean the writer was inspired by God, yet we also know the various books that make up the Bible are the stories of two ancient communities trying to be faithful to God under difficult circumstances, ancient Israel and the early Christian movement, and some of what was experienced and written then doesn't fit with today's world. That's the quote from their site. So they claim the Bible is central, and yet and yet they have a built-in rationale to excuse the difficult parts of it, which is precisely what they do. So I would ask, is this really believing the Bible? Is that really having it central? Is that really receiving the Word of God? So what does it mean to believe the Bible? How would we know if a person, if ourselves, if we have believed the Bible how would we know if a church is Bible-believing? In our passage today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and following, um, the Thessalonians are commended for receiving the Word of God. And so we're going to look at this question of how do I know if I believe the Bible? How would we test that? Of course, many people claim to believe the Bible. So how do we know if that's true, if that ends up looking really different Uh, for various people who claim to believe the book. And though I use there the uh, United Church's statement as an illustration, uh, I want us to examine our own hearts uh, this afternoon during this time, our own lives. The main issue at stake here is not what another church or another person believes. That's not irrelevant, but it's not the main thing at stake The main thing here is what you believe about this book, what you believe about the gospel, and us as a church, what we believe. That is, whether or not we've received the word in the way that is right and true, a true saving reception of it. And so ask yourself today, do I believe the Bible? Have I truly received it? So first... Uh, if you have truly received the word, uh, as we'll see here, you will be confident that God himself is its source. You will be confident that God himself is the source of the word. So verse 13 of First Thessalonians 2 says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God. So Paul here expresses his gratitude that when they received the Word, they understood it was ultimately a message from God, not a human message. It wasn't man's message. Paul says they received it, they received the Word of God. This Word of God would be the message that they brought to the Thessalonians. It includes the gospel And it includes other apostolic teachings related to the gospel. So we know that Paul would preach the cross, that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again from the dead, that as king he now calls on all men everywhere to repent and place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. So we know he preaches that message. We also know in in chapter 4, verse 1 of 1 Thessalonians and in verse 2 Uh, we see that Paul taught them how they ought to live, that is, how they ought to walk and to please God, along with other instructions he gave them that were expressing the will of God. So there's various teachings being brought. We also know in chapter 3, verse uh, 4 that he was teaching them how to suffer, he was giving them a theology of suffering, so there were various things that he was teaching, and they received this as the word of God. This word for receiving instruction is often used in a technical sense when uh, talking about uh, teaching that was coming from a teacher to, uh, to students. And so in the New Testament, it's often used in this way to refer to the transmission of the gospel and apostolic doctrine, to churches to others and paul says when they received this they accepted it that is they appropriated it for themselves for what it really is namely the word of god so again they understood it's not a man-made human message it was god's its source is god it's his message from himself to the thessalonians for Paul to call it the Word of God is for him to equate it with the Old Testament. And that's no small thing for him to do. There, there was an, early, uh, an understanding in the early church that apostolic teaching was authoritative, uh, much like the prophets of the Old Testament, how when they spoke, they were authoritative. They were speaking the Word of God. And so we, we see this in 2 Peter 3 15 and 16, where Peter refers to Paul's writings as scriptures. Okay, so there was an understanding, even early on, that the, what the apostles taught was authoritative and that they were bringing the word of God. So sometimes you'll we'll hear people say, oh, it was in the fourth century that the church just decided uh, what scriptures were going to be scriptures. Well, it's just not true. Early on, it was understood that the apostles were authoritative and we even see Peter refer to Paul's writings as scriptures. Of course, today, the Old Testament and the apostolic teachings are preserved for us in the Bible, in the written Word of God. And the conviction of believers uh, throughout history, throughout the ages, has been that this Word is no ordinary human message, that ultimately its source is in God. So think of 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, it's God-breathed. The idea there is that it's Source is God. It comes from Him. That's the way in which it's inspired, inspired. It's, it's His. It's from Him to people. And so it's therefore reliable, it's trustworthy because its source is the reliable, trustworthy, faithful, true God. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about how preaching the gospel um, through preaching the gospel, that God is the one making his appeal through Paul through the apostles how could that be if this is not god's message right it's showing god is the source of this message this is his word to others so this is really the opposite of the view that i quoted at the beginning that says we also know that various books that make the bible are the stories of two ancient communities trying to be faithful to god but that ultimately Some of what was written doesn't really fit with today's world. That's the opposite view of what the Bible says. This is not just a couple of communities trying to make sense of God and erring in some places and getting it right in certain other places. The Word is from God. Its source is from Him, every word of it. So many people will acknowledge that the Word is fascinating, that it's a good book with some good morals maybe even in it. Uh, Many people will like certain aspects of it. They'll want the concept of heaven, or at least part of the concept of heaven, of having no pain. Um, But they'll refuse to make it their authority in all things. The Word of God is from Him. Its source is God Himself. So if you uh, today do not believe that the gospel is God's word, that it's His message, that it's His call to salvation, that it's His offer of forgiveness to a lost and dying world, if you don't believe that that's ultimately from Him, then you haven't really received it, even if you think perhaps you have. And if that is you, let me ask you, what, what keeps you from believing it? What keeps you from receiving the Word? Even now, today, hear the voice of God summon you to life from the dead. Hear Him make His appeal, even right now, to you to repent and believe the Gospel of Jesus Christ. To turn from your sinful ways. To walk in them no longer. To look to Jesus crucified buried and risen again for sinners and place faith in him alone for your forgiveness and your justification Waver no longer we don't know how much time we have we don't we don't have forever to consider these things or to put them off to put it off the call of god to you god's word to you through this that he has given to us is to repent and to believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, to turn from your sins and be saved and be reconciled to God. And if that is you, if that is your conviction, you do believe that, you believe this is from Him, then today you can rejoice in the grace of God that's come to you, that your eyes have been opened to believe and to see this truth that is from God. And I would encourage you, nurture this belief, nurture this faith in God. Nurture this trust in His Word. Um, Christ- Christians will still struggle sometimes with doubts, doubts about the Word, doubts about certain elements. Doubts will creep in. Questions will come as we approach this written Word of God. But I would encourage you seek answers to those doubts, those questions. Um, don't be content to live in this with these questions or these doubts, but Ask for help resolving questions. Uh, Seek out answers. Do do the hard work of studying to find answers to your questions. And and let us do this together. Uh, Let's not pretend we never struggle, ever, with any doubts about anything we find in the Bible. It's not noble to pretend we, we never struggle. So let's bear with one another in our doubts, in our questions, and let's push forward together under the conviction that the gospel and indeed the entire written word is God's, is from him. So if you've truly received the word, then you'll be convinced that this is from God, that its source is God. Second, it will be at work within you. The Word of God will be at work within you if you have received it as such. Paul says at the end of verse 13 that this Word of God, he says it is the Word of God which is at work in you believers. The end of verse 13, it's at work in you believers. Receiving the Word of God is not merely a mental assent, like how we might walk into a store and see a shirt and look at it and say, yeah, yeah, I kind of like that shirt. It's not bad. I like it. That's not how we approach the Bible, where we hear the gospel and we go, eh, okay, it's all right. I like that. That's not what truly receiving the Word of God is. When the Word is received by people truly, it actually does work in them. It brings about a miraculous and supernatural change in believers. That's what Paul's saying. It's at work in you believers. This is most notably perhaps seen in the Thessalonians in the fact of their conversion. So back in chapter 1, uh, in verses 4 through 10, we looked at, at a little at that. Paul talks about how they believed. When they believed, they turned from idols to the living God, which was a big deal. Their idolatry uh, was part of the very fabric of society and who they were. So this was a significant turn for them, a significant and clear repentance and change of heart. They had been remaining steadfast in suffering, which we'll see more of in a moment. They had become examples to other believers all around Macedonia. Okay, there was, this word was at work in them. It was changing them. In 4 verse 1, we see they'd been taught how to walk, how to please God. And in 4 verse 9, we see that that had also translated into love for one another. They had a sincere love for each other, for the other believers in their midst. So they'd left idols, they'd suffered for that, they'd been ostracized, but they'd joined together and they'd learned to love each other. This is fruit that had been produced through the word of God being received by them. And so when the word is received, it produces fruit. This is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about the need to be born again. A true belief... True reception of the word of the gospel results in a change of heart that is brought about by the Spirit. This is regeneration. It's a miraculous working of God in which He takes the unbelieving heart, the heart that's made of stone, and replaces it with a new heart, a heart of flesh. It's God making a hardened sinner into a new creation. So, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 talks about everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what it's talking about. This regeneration, being born again, being made a new creation, it's accompanied by an actual real change in the person. George Whitfield. Uh, I think I've used this, uh, I've told you this story before, but uh, he was a very religious man. Uh, But when he was confronted with this teaching, with the need to be born again, to have an actual change in his heart, that there needed to be an inward renewal, he became very unsettled And very upset and disturbed to the point of being physically sick for a long period of time because he realized that there had been no change within him. That there was no warmth in his heart towards God. That all of his religiosity was external. And inwardly, he had no love for God. And so even a man who could appear to be very holy, um, even a man like that still did not have regeneration in his heart. Had not been born again. So the Word of God, when it's received truly by somebody, it's at work. And so I ask you, is the Word at work in you? Have you delight in your Christian duties? Have you delight in the things of God? When you obey, does that make you happy? Does that delight you? Was your profession of faith accompanied by new desires, which began to be aligned with God's? Is it your desire to do His will? Does it grieve your heart when you sin and when you fail? Do you despise the times when you succumb to temptation? Even those moments where your desire to do His will is in conflict with other desires... Does that bother you that that conflict is there because you wish to be free from that conflict? If your answer to these questions is yes, then these are marks of one who has received the word of the gospel, who has received the new birth, who has been born again. If your answer is no, then like Whitfield, you need to get on your knees and cast yourself on the mercy of God asking for grace to be forgiven and to be renewed. Years removed from your profession of faith, do you still have the desire to have the Word of God correct your errors in your thinking, in your lifestyle, in your theology, in whatever it might be? When your ideas, your understanding of things, your actions are revealed to be in opposition to the Word of God, do you submit to the Word? Or do you force the Word to submit to you or ignore certain parts of it? Again, if you still desire to be submissive to the Word, that doesn't mean there's no struggle. But if you desire, that's a good sign that the Word of God is at work in you. And again, if your profession of faith has not resulted in a changed heart, you ought to be, as I said, like Whitfield was, disturbed and not rest until you have experienced that, till you have received the mercy of God and to call out for Him and to come to the end of yourself and you're striving to be made right or to be good enough apart from Christ that you might receive His grace. So if you've truly received the Word, it will be at work in you. And thirdly... If you've received the word, you will be willing to bear the reproach of Christ. You will be willing to suffer for the sake of Christ, to bear his shame. Let's read verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God and Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. So Paul now explains how it is that he knows that they received the word and that it's at work in them, namely that they've been willing to suffer for what they received. These were no rocky ground believers, no rocky ground hearers. The rocky ground believer from Jesus' parable is the one who initially gives an enthusiastic reception to the word, but bails out once Tribulation and trial and persecution comes along. That's when they they bail out of here. The Thessalonians were not those types of believers. They persevered through suffering. They became imitators, Paul says, of the, the churches in Judea, the Christian churches, predominantly Jewish, in and around Jerusalem. And they did this by suffering, he says, from their own countrymen. That would be from the Gentiles that were in Macedonia. Uh, so just as the Jewish Christians suffered from the Jews that were unbelieving of the gospel, so the Thessalonians were suffering from the Gentiles around them. <clears throat> and we saw this a little back in verse 6 of chapter 1 about how they uh, received the word in much affliction. Um, after, so after Paul left, uh, the Christians continued to suffer, this time from the hands of the Gentiles. and uh, we, we talked a little about this. This would have re- Included certainly social rejection, isolation. We see accusations. This was all we see. All of this in Acts 17, uh, or the beginning of it, and it, it may have possibly even led to violence against them and martyrdom. We don't know that for sure, but possibly. Um, so, so Paul continues. Let's keep reading, uh, verse 15. Um, partway through 14, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. So in these, these verses, Paul digresses here and talks about the rebellion of the Jewish people. And I think the purpose of this is twofold. uh, To help the Thessalonians um, see that their suffering is shared with other believers, and also to remind them that those who oppose the Lord and His message will ultimately receive judgment for it. So to help them see their suffering is not unique to them, it's part of God's faithful uh, in Jerusalem. And around Jerusalem, and also to help them see that ultimately those who oppose God uh, receive wrath from Him. So let's just walk through these verses a bit more. He says that uh, the Jews killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. Um, certainly, we know Jesus was put to death by the Romans; those were Gentiles. But it was the Jewish leaders that handed Jesus over to Pilate, and Jesus even says in John nineteen eleven that their guilt was worse than that of Pilate. So, even Pilate who who gave the order to kill him. So, we know the Jews handed Jesus over. They killed the Lord Jesus, he says, and the prophets. The Old Testament filled with examples from Israel's history of God's people rejecting God's prophets and those who are faithful among them. So, a couple examples. Joseph was hated by his brothers. Moses was rejected by His own people by the Israelites, preserved by God, though. Elijah was hunted down by Jezebel. David was hunted down by Saul. Jeremiah's prophecies were ignored. He was thrown into a cistern. This is common, unfortunately, throughout the Old Testament. It was the pattern of Israel's unfaithfulness. The faithful people were persecuted. Paul also says that they drove us out. They drove us out. So now, at this point in Israel's history, the the Jews, specifically the leaders, uh, have actually driven out the apostles. They have driven out the messengers of the Messiah who came to save. And So we see this also in the book of Acts. Acts 8.1 talks about uh, persecution that erupted after the stoning of Stephen. And, of course, Paul was there for this. Paul was actually one of the ones breathing out murderous threats against the church at that time. So he was initially on the other side of this. Uh, Acts 12, 1, we see Herod, he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church and killed James, the brother of John. And when, it says when this, this pleased the Jews, we're told, and it led to further persecution and a scattering of the faithful. And of course, in Acts 17, when Paul and Silas arrive in Thessalonica, the Jews stir up the crowd against them, and ultimately Paul and Silas were forced to leave there, having faced further opposition. So Paul says that they displease God, that ultimately through their unbelief and their rejection of God, they displease him. And he even says they oppose all mankind by, it explains how, by hindering the gospel by hindering the gospel advancing to the Gentiles, thus keeping them from hearing the message and turning to God to be saved. This is what outrages Paul the most about this. They oppose the word of God going forth. This is not a petty personal matter for Paul. It's not a personal thing. Their opposition is against God and the gospel, and it's hindering people from hearing the message and being saved. And Paul is rightly upset about this. And he says, in this way, they are filling up the measure of their sins. Filling up the measure of their sins. So the picture here is that there's a certain amount of sins that God tolerates before he then pours out his wrath. And so an example of this is Genesis 15, 16. God is talking to Abraham And Abraham is told that his descendants will go to Egypt and they'll be enslaved there for a time before eventually returning to the land that he's promised him. And then he's told the reason why it's going to take these 400 years. He says, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So those who lived in the promised land, their iniquity was not yet complete. They were filled with sins, but it wasn't complete. God had a certain measure. When it reaches this point... God was being patient with them, then your descendants will come into this land. And they would come in the form of judgment against the Amorites for their iniquity and all the Canaanites. Jesus uses the same wording, the same language in Matthew 23, 31 to 32. It's in response to the Pharisees uh, who reject him, uh, just as the Jews have rejected other prophets throughout the their history. And so again, now Paul is saying that they again, the Israelites again, have filled up the measure of their sins. And now that that has happened, that they've reached this point, now wrath has come upon them. In what way? It's it's debated what Paul's referring to when he says wrath has come upon them here. Uh, It could be that it's a specific event that was happening during this time um, against the Jews that was evidence to Paul that that they had been facing wrath. Um, But I think it's best to see this as being the partial hardening that was on the Jews while the gospel was making significant inroads, Significant gains amongst the Gentiles. So even despite all the opposition that the Jews are giving, the gospel is still going forward, and Gentiles are being saved. And so Paul, Paul in, in Romans 11, makes this more explicit as he talks about um, the partial hardening that had come upon the Jews. And I think that's what Paul is seeing here, that they've been, they've been given over to this spirit of stupor that he describes in Romans 11, and, and this is evidence that wrath has come upon them. They are, just, they are now wholesale rejecting and opposing the gospel everywhere, and this is evidence of God's wrath. Some, some find these verses troubling um, and, and, and find them to be anti-Semitic because of Paul's harsh words. They are harsh words. And so I just quickly want to address that. This question of, is this anti-Semitism? And first, in my, I would say no. And the first reason for that is that Paul himself is a Jew. He still loved and desired the salvation of his fellow Jews. That's also clear from Romans 11. He desired them to be saved. The same Paul who wrote this rebuke was the same Paul that continued to go in his evangelistic efforts first to the Jews. So they were still the focus of his evangelistic efforts. When they would refuse him, he would go to the Gentiles as well and preach to them. Um, so this is, this is not all that Paul has to say uh, about uh, the Jews, nor is this even a reference to every individual Jew. Again, he is a Jew. Uh, e- even the, the reference, uh, the Christians that the Thessalonians are imitating in Judea are, Christ- are Jewish Christians. Okay. Um, second, um, Paul is just as harsh about Gentile paganism, Gentile sin, as he is here. If you read Romans 1, 18 to the end of the chapter, they're very, very harsh words against um, p- the paganism in his day, of Gentile rejection of God and wholesale uh, nosedive into sin. Um, it's, 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 it's very harsh. And so we could say he's an equal opportunity offender when it comes to calling out sin in people. He doesn't show partiality. Um, Moreover, this is a uh, polemical digression that's highlighting the solidarity between the Thessalonians and Jewish Christians in Judea. And their solidarity with God's elect throughout history who have received persecution. Persecution. And it's an expression of Paul's frustration at the Jewish opposition to the gospel, which the Thessalonians themselves witnessed when he was in Thessalonica, which is, we can read in Acts 17. And so it's here to strengthen them, his, uh, his, this church, by showing that even the Jerusalem church faced opposition. And, and they are one with them, and they're one with the faithful throughout history who have received this kind of opposition. And their willingness to walk through this suffering is evidence to Paul that they really have received the Word of God and that it's at work in them. In Hebrews 11, um, we are told, verse 24 to 26, I'll read it for you. It's about Moses. It says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. For Moses, following the Lord's plans meant mistreatment and reproach, and Moses willingly endured it. He willingly endured it. And so it is with us. If we've received the word, we will be willing to endure the reproach that comes with it. Uh, we've discussed this a little bit in the previous, some of our previous messages. We've looked in chapter 1. Um, but the reality is if, if our master was persecuted and suffered, we too will be persecuted and suffer to some extent. So, if what we believe about the Bible removes any reason for us to suffer, then we have not really believed it. We have not really received it in a saving way. Because the reality is, the unbelieving world is at enmity with God. And so, if we believe God and stand with Him, that will make them at enmity with us. And so, we will inevitably suffer some measure of persecution. And again, the statement I read at the outset uh, removes any need to suffer for the message of the Bible. Right? If, if we don't really think it's from God, we're not really convinced of that, we just dismiss parts of it that are going to get us in trouble with society. Okay? If something's out of vogue in society, whether it's the definition of marriage, um, what the Bible says about sexuality and gender, any exclusive claims of Christ, if those things will get us in trouble, well, they don't fit with today's world, they're out. Right? This is not the way of God's faithful. Really, we have the choice. Receive the reproach of Christ, or we can receive the accolades of the world. And as we see, the faithful, like Moses, I read from Hebrews 11, have chosen the reproach of Christ. But even as we consider the prospect of facing suffering, for our beliefs. Be encouraged. This is the way, the pathway, of all who have believed God, have truly believed God and His Word. Consider the Thessalonians, whom we're reading about as Paul is talking to them. We would be standing with them. The Judean Christians who suffered at the hands of the Jews, we would be standing with them consider all the faithful throughout the Scriptures, we would be standing with them. The apostles themselves. Paul talks about how an apostle is like the scum of the earth. Okay, the highest office in the church, in the New Testament church, just lived miserable lives by the world's standards, just getting abuse hurled at them everywhere they go. Show me a hero of church history, and I will show you one who suffered for his or her faith, to some extent. Consider Athanasius in the 4th century, basically, at times, the only person, pretty much, so it seemed, defending the Trinity, Trinitarian orthodoxy. On five times exiled, and yet unwavering in his commitment to scriptural truth. Continually coming back to the scriptures, consider others through church history, John Wycliffe, Jan Hus, Luther, Calvin, John Bunyan, Charles Spurgeon, and countless lesser known ordinary faithful believers of whom the world was not worthy, all suffered greatly in this life. And so be of good courage at the thought of suffering reproach. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses who have run this race and have endured. And so we are called to stand with the faithful throughout history and to receive scorn for our faith in Christ and His Word. And at the end of all things, we will receive our vindication and our commendation from God Himself. And this is what it means to live by faith, to be willing to be mistreated now for the sake of eternal riches later. And this is no fool's bargain. And none of this is to, is to downplay the pain. This doesn't mean that when pain and suffering comes, as though we just shouldn't feel it, or, oh, it doesn't, we don't actually experience pain because we're just set on eternal things. We still feel it. It still hurts When it's physical for Paul, if he's beaten or anyone else, you still feel the pain of that. It's not pleasant. We don't rejoice in actually being physically hurt or uh, could be uh, cut off from other friends or socially maligned or spoken ill of. These things still hurt. It's not downplaying it. But it's enduring it with eyes of faith set on eternity. And so true reception of the Word brings with it a willingness to bear the reproach of Christ. And so confidence that the message is from God, ongoing change in our inner being, having the Word do work in us, and willingness to suffer reproach for the sake of the truth contained within the Word. These are all part of what it means to truly receive, to truly believe the word of God. And this is what we are all called to, and may it ever be true of every one of us. Charles Spurgeon fought a great battle over the authority of the Bible in his day, over the truthfulness of the word in his day. The stress that he experienced from it, his suffering, likely contributed to his early death in his 50s. Um, But I'd like to close with some of his words which came near the end of his life. Uh, It was the last time that he addressed the students in his pastor's college, and he'd been long at battle at this point. And so it ended up being his final address. He wouldn't have known it at the time. But in contrast to his opponents, who ultimately undermined Scripture through their endless speculations and through capitulation to what he called the whimsical age in which they lived— Um, This is what Spurgeon had to say. He said, As for us, we cast anchor in the haven of the Word of God. Here is our peace, our strength, our life, our motive, our hope, our happiness. God's Word is our ultimatum. Here we have it. Our understanding cries, I have found it. Our conscience asserts that here is the truth. And our heart finds here a support to which all her affections can cling. And hence, we can rest content. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've given us your word. It's your word. God, I pray you would convince every single one of us that this word is yours. That your call is to repent of our sins and to trust in Jesus Christ would be received by all of us as being Your Word. That it would then that it would do work in our hearts by Your Spirit. That You would cause everyone here to receive the new birth. And that You'd make us willing to stand with the Thessalonians, with Paul, with Christ, and to receive any reproach that comes unwilling to waver unwilling to sell out or compromise the truth. God, I pray that you would bear up weak knees, those of us who are struggling. I pray that you would, any here with sincere doubts and struggles would receive answers, that we would be those who lovingly encourage and bear with one another when we struggle. I pray that we would not Um, just quietly go along while we struggle to believe your word. I pray that you would do good work in our hearts, even greater work. I pray that you would give us courage to share your word with others and that you would do work in our city and all around us um, for your own good pleasure in your own name. We give you the praise. We pray that you would encourage our hearts. Give, make us people of the word. I pray that it would be our joy to rise early or stay up late or whatever it needs to be to spend time with you in your word, that you'd bring understanding and give us much grace in this. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.